You're listening to the Root Causing Health Podcast. I'm Nick Andre, and together with my partner Nathan Owens, we are delving deep into the science to answer the question, what causes chronic disease? We'll cover the basics, talk about our hypotheses, and bring you the best guests from around the medical and research community. If you like what we have here, please join us over at rootcausinghealth.com, where you'll find our blog and other resources. You can also support us on Patreon to fund our research and get early access to all of our content. Welcome to episode two on the Foundation series. In our first episode, we covered a lot of the reasons why the lipid hypothesis of atherogenesis fails to explain many of the observations. In this episode, we will cover the most important facets of atherogenesis to set the stage for our hypothesis, which we'll discuss in more detail in the following episode, number three. This will cover the relevant bits of atherosclerotic pathology and the interesting tidbits relative to the intersection of the coronary arteries, atherosclerosis, the electrical and various control systems governing the heart. I recently made the joke to a friend that I'm apparently now the world expert on pathology of atherosclerosis, having read Velikin about two times. I think I should continue to claim to be the world expert in atherosclerotic pathology until at least one other person in the known universe emerges to try and take that throne from me, and then I'll just ask them a few straightforward questions on what's actually going on here. As we mentioned in our Houston talk and elsewhere, we will advocate for the innate immune hypothesis of atherogenesis and other chronic disease. The proposed causal pathway is, number one, poor diet results in impaired gut health, lipid metabolism, intestinal inflammation, which, through some as yet poorly understood mechanism, drives increased absorption of endotoxins into the serum. Step two, endotoxins, and quite possibly other factors associated with this central dysfunction, facilitate activation of the innate immune system, which drives atherogenesis and chronic disease. The mechanism seems very strong. Uh, though there's a ton of ambiguity on the precise link between food, gut, inflammation, lipid metabolism, and endotoxemia and the innate immune activation that it's associated with, it's not clear exactly what comes first and what follows. But I have quite high confidence from a high level, given the concordance of the evidence. For more detail, you can see the various tweets from Gabor Erdosi, who is kind of hot on the trail of this and, and teasing apart the mechanisms at play here. He keeps sending us papers on Twitter. We should uh, definitely do another podcast episode with him. Gabor has pointed out that endotoxemia may not be the sole driver here. I definitely agree with him. However, we're going to focus on this primary pathway or mechanism and apply the Pareto principle. We expect that a minority of the mechanisms will drive the majority of the problem. It should therefore be possible using some immune activation surrogates and precursor tests like LPS and uh, lipopolysaccharide binding protein levels to ascertain a very high hazard ratio predictor of cardiovascular disease progression, which in turn would associate with myocardial clinical manifestations. More specifically, I would like to generate a test via sufficient surrogates that if the test returned a very low risk or very low number, one would have essentially zero risk of myocardial clinical events. We fundamentally lack such a test at present. Calcification works well to ascertain risk, but doesn't address transient behavior of the system. For example, we don't necessarily want calcium to decrease. A reasonable black box model for the behavior of this system is as follows. 
During a state of progression, new lesions are forming very rapidly, especially as we move into the middle age brackets like 40 to 50 years and above. An individual in this state, assuming the system is functioning properly, would show high coronary calcium score and a subsequent increase in coronary calcium when retested on an annual basis. I should caveat that it is not known precisely what factors drive calcification. So a particular individual may not have the calcification mechanism working properly, say due to an especially poor diet, and thus in such people calcification would not be a good surrogate. This explains why the rate of myocardial clinical manifestations is not zero in a low calcium score. After applying lifestyle and diet intervention, we would expect the immune force which is driving this disease to stop. We should be able to devise a test which would track this directly and see a rather abrupt drop in said immune surrogate which would entail a cessation of atherogenesis insofar as new unstable lesions are concerned. At this point, we may expect calcification to continue at an exponentially decaying rate. There still exists unstable plaque which the body is trying to stabilize. It is tempting to presume that when said atherogenesis stops, the rate of myocardial clinical manifestations will rapidly approach zero despite the increasing calcification. And then at some point thereafter, the calcification will level off once all the plaque has stabilized. The key problem here is that we don't know the period. We don't have reliable data on people that made a substantial lifestyle change, which follows their calcification rate at something like three-month intervals following the adoption of, say, a carnivorous diet with intermittent fasting. So we can only guess at what that result would be or try to assemble anecdotes. The key point here is that there is likely a divergence between the rate of coronary calcification increase in the short term and the risk of myocardial clinical manifestations, which requires a more appropriate surrogate to track. Therefore, it will probably take multiple years of coronary calcium scans to provide feedback to the lifestyle interventionist. This, in my opinion, is unacceptable, and I think it's the reason why a lot of lean mass hyperresponders still have lingering apprehension over risk factors like LDL. We need a better surrogate that responds quicker. As best I can ascertain, the pathology of atherosclerosis supports the hypothesis that bad shit in the blood drives the disease. Velikin refers many times to a hypothetical yet-to-be-discovered injurious necrotizing agent from the blood. Um, we need to explain this, obviously. There appear to be kind of three phases of atherogenesis, roughly grouped into initiation, progression, and then clinical events and mortality. So the first two are mostly silent, and you will not notice disease in a typical individual. You will not notice any symptoms until the third stage. I'll start with the non-atherosclerotic components of myocardial clinical manifestations. And yes, there are other factors than atherosclerosis which regulate heart attacks. First, we must provide a few key terms on the heart. As I alluded to in my Houston talk, atherosclerosis is not the sole player in myocardial infarction. It is possible to have myocardial infarction with relatively little atherosclerosis. A rigorous definition of atherosclerosis may well exclude very thick intimas from the disease, yet those can cause myocardial clinical manifestations, including sudden death. The heart has several unique characteristics. It can only absorb blood into the muscle while in the diastole, because the pressure of the muscle contracting is insufficient to pu push blood into itself through the coronary. This is one of the reasons that tachycardia can be so bad. When the heart is contracting constantly, it doesn't leave time for blood to perfuse the heart muscle. 
The heart extracts about 75% of the oxygen in the blood that flows through it, which is substantially more efficient than a typical organ, which would extract something like 25%. And this 75% figure seems to be about the maximum that the cells can extract physically. Therefore, if the heart requires additional oxygen due to additional metabolic demand, it requires additional blood flow immediately. This is regulated via an articulate control system, which controls the vascular tone of the coronaries to dynamically adjust the amount of blood flow to the myocardium. The ability of the coronaries to upregulate the amount of blood supply is called coronary reserve. If the coronaries become rigid or otherwise fail to do this properly due to problems with signaling, it is called an impaired coronary reserve and may be the cause of angina in patients without obvious atherosclerosis. When they exercise, their coronaries cannot sufficiently increase the flow of blood to meet demand. There are many stimuli that can interfere with this system, and it shouldn't surprise you that one of those stimuli is endotoxins like LPS. There are also some interesting tidbits like coronary steel, where the blood flow irregularity in one region of the heart can create a sort of feedback loop resulting in a cascading failure where the blood flow is siphoned away from the area with reduced blood flow and increased in areas that don't have a problem. I would explain this further, but to be honest, I need to reread that chapter probably a third time. Anyways, it is totally plausible that a myocardial infarction could be triggered with minimal or zero atherosclerosis via a more direct attack on the nuanced system of the heart and coronary arteries. A heart attack is a very acute event. It is not entirely clear how well correlated atherosclerosis and heart attack are, Giorgio Baroldi had a case study where they witnessed a heart attack while a subject was undergoing catheterization with an EKG hooked up and cineangiography, basically an angiogram video that they were looking at, and nothing really lined up. The chest pain didn't line up with the EKG changes, nor did formation of a clot line up with the other two. I really need to dig up this paper and read it because it was quite interesting. Most investigators seem to consider that these heart attacks that aren't as primarily driven by atherosclerosis, are less common. And I think that may be correct. I think atherosclerosis is probably involved most of the time, but I wouldn't su be surprised if the mechanism that's governing these other problems has similarities, i.e. that endotoxemia has its fingers in both pies. Covering atherosclerosis itself, starting at the beginning, the first abnormality we see in atherogenesis is abnormal growth. The abnormal growth is associated with the abnormal dedifferentiation and proliferation of vascular smooth muscle cells. It requires that the smooth muscle cells switch from the contractile to the synthetic phenotype and migrate into the intima. Usually, the smooth muscle cells hang out in the middle layer of the artery, but in response to some stimulus like, for example, damage or immune response, the cells can switch from muscly mode, called the contractile phenotype, to the repair mode, called the synthetic phenotype, think synthesis. This process of dedifferentiation is reversible, but it seems that it is possible for these cells to get stuck in the repair mode after either migrating to the different environment of the intima, the other layer of the artery, or experiencing repeated trauma or stimulus. The smooth muscle cells in the intima tend to display the synthetic phenotype much more than the cells in the media. The dedifferentiation is associated with a change in lipid metabolism. Cells in the contractile phenotype don't tend to accumulate lipid, but in repair mode, in vitro studies show that a difference in the rate of lipoprotein uptake. This comes from factors in the formation and regression of the atherosclerotic plaque, a book Malcolm Kendrick led me to. It's quoted in one of his blog posts. So several factors drive intimal thickening, 
including smooth muscle cell proliferation, but also other factors, quite likely endotoxins directly. Experiments in rabbits show thickened intimas with endotoxin injection, as I mentioned in my Houston talk. The thickening of the intima can present problems because there is a limit to how far oxygen and nutrients can diffuse in the tissue. Once the intima gets too thick, in some sources quoted as 500 micrometers or more, the environment begins to switch to an anaerobic metabolism in the center of the artery. This is not only inefficient and maybe insufficient to supply necessary energy demands, but anaerobic respiration results in lactic acid, which can alter the pH of the tissue. The thickening of the intima can also affect myocardial clinical manifestations without triggering atherosclerosis. When the artery fails to compensate by increasing the overall diameter of the artery to maintain sufficient luminal volume for the blood to flow through. It is particularly interesting at this point to discuss the study of atherosclerosis in the Maasai in a paper by Mann from 1972. I'll do a separate discussion of this Maasai paper but by Mann, but basically this paper showed something very interesting. Mann didn't note any fibrosis of the coronary arteries. He noted fibrosis of the aorta, but not of the coronaries, and I'm still unclear as to whether he just neglected to talk about it, but I can't imagine he wouldn't have mentioned it if they discovered fibrous lesions there. He did notice very thick intimas of the coronary vessels that were on par with or thicker than those in Western comparison groups. Velikin notes that very thick intimas can actually cause myocardial clinical manifestations like anginas or sudden cardiac death on their own based on their ability to narrow the vessel lumen substantially, particularly if they involve the coronary branch vessels that supply the conduction system of the heart. And in Velikin's material, Side note, I love the use of the word material for like dead people arteries, but in his arteries of Romanian individuals, the intimal thickness correlated with a reduction in coronary vessel lumen diameter. However, in the Maasai, the old people had very thick intimas, yet their lumen, the diameter that the blood could flow through, had actually grown to be larger than the lumen of the younger counterparts. This is very informative on trying to deduce what normal is in human coronary arteries. To steal a phrase from Velikin, it is tempting to presume, therefore, that very thick intimas are normal in human coronary arteries with aging, and that the abnormality itself is the failure of the overall blood vessel diameter to increase to accommodate, and the failure of neovascularization to supply additional blood flow. Anyways, the Maasai had minimal aortic fibrosis through their 30s, an incidence of less than 1 in 5, and no apparent coronary atherosclerotic involvement. They did incorporate Western foods into their diet as they left what they called the Moran period when they were tribal warriors eating exclusively meat, fermented milk, and blood. This happened around age 30. Their return to the incorporation of Western foods associates with an increase in fibrosis in individuals aged 40 to 50, but this particular paper didn't include very many specifics. I would argue that this paper is consistent with the hypothesis that individuals in a carnivorous diet will not suffer myocardial clinical manifestations. And the one point that this paper stressed, which has been mischaracterized multiple times, was that the genetic explanation for this difference was flatly rejected due to the heterogeneity of the Maasai and their nomadic practices. On the intimal thickening, in some cases new blood vessels form in the intima called neovascularization. This is sometimes held to be abnormal. This point was stressed by Vladimir Subutin in a recent paper. It is also possible that the cells can die, called necrosis, which is also not a great thing to happen. It is not necessarily clear what may lead to one or the other outcome. But we believe that it is related to immune activation and endotoxemia in some fashion. It would have been interesting to see whether neovascularization occurred in the Maasai intimas, but sadly, 
we don't have any more Maasai to measure anymore. Valakin proposed the hypothesis that the nature of the pathogenic stimulus, either being more chronic or more acute, could influence aspects like the type of early plaque formed and the structure of the plaque. Basically, a more chronic but lower intensity stimulus could drive a diffuse involvement with less severity, while a more transient acute stimulus could affect a more focused lesion with greater severity. There are five discrete types of lipid-free early lesions classified by their characteristics on visual inspection. These include fibromuscular lesions, gelatinous lesions, small intimal necrotic areas, incorporated microthrombi, and intramural thrombi. Uh, thrombus basically means scab, like a clot within the, uh, the artery wall. Additionally, lesions of the coronary branch vessels can be purely fibrous without lipid accumulation. There is a somewhat unexplained homogenization process which occurs where the plaque converts from having the discrete layers present in the artery to having a homogeneous composition. There are several interesting tidbits. First, damage to the artery itself seems capable of causing a fibrofatty lesion in animal models. It's possible that the main influence of the other changes in the artery are to impair the capacity of the artery to heal in the course of its normal damage. Velikin notes this several times, that a complete absence of the artery is attempting to heal itself through certain phases of this disease. It is also possible that the rate or amount of damage is augmented by the endotoxemia itself. Two, there is the presence of an infection from C. pneumoniae. From what I can discern, this bacteria is present frequently in healthy arteries but manages to evade immune detection. It is quite possible that the degeneration in the tissue from the above early stimulus results in a favorable environment for an opportunistic infection from these bacteria. This might explain the homogenization of the tissue and aspects of lipid accumulation since these bacteria seem to have a similar lipid content to plaque. I don't see a lot of evidence supporting that these bacteria cause atherogenesis because antibiotics don't seem to help all that much. Thrombosis is intimately involved with atherogenesis, as advocated eloquently by Malcolm Kendrick. However, it's possible that thrombosis is merely a key aspect of the progression of atherosclerosis and not the initiator per se. There is evidence from Velikin that not all fibrin accumulation in the mature lesion is in the same form as we would expect if it came in via a thrombus. So some of the fibrin accumulation may be independent of uh, blood clotting. Several aspects strongly support thrombosis, though. A portion of the accumulation in a mature fibrofatty lesion is free cholesterol. There is some debate over the extent to which cholesterol can be de-esterified within the artery wall, but a suggestion has been that it doesn't happen, and that the free cholesterol is deposited independently of lipoproteins, which contain mostly esterified cholesterol. Moreover, there's evidence that the cholesterol is esterified in situ inside the artery wall as a protection mechanism, so the free cholesterol that accumulates can alter things like membrane permeability. Esterification makes it inert since it's wrapped up in uh, a lipoprotein and bound to these other, other uh, molecules. Incorporated thrombi and mural thrombi are frequently found in the atherosclerotic lesion. This suggests that stability and rupture are a key part in the second stage progression of atherosclerosis, maybe even the first stage. We also believe that rupture is key in the final stage of atherogenesis. The other key element is plaque reinforcement and stability. Many processes seem to be acting to stabilize the plaque, like calcification and the formation of fibrous caps around the fatty or necrotic core of the plaque. The calcification reinforces the artery, such that the degenerated tissue becomes very stiff and resilient to aneurysm. The fibrous caps hold the plaque together from the inside. Certain events are associated with a dramatic increase in the incidence of heart attacks, for example, in the 30-day window around a respiratory infection. MI incidence increased by 48-fold in one study. 
Note that 48 is an actual hazard ratio, not like an LDL fan hazard ratio. Anyways, it would appear that immune activation is involved with wearing down the fibrous cap and creating an environment favorable to an acute event like an MI. There are some other interesting facets of this disease. Necrosis is a key part of atherosclerosis as it advances. It can happen at a variety of stages, even the lipid-free intimal necrotic areas at the beginning of the disease. The delicate balance of oxygen through the thickening of the intima assuredly plays a role. It's possible that the key dysfunction leading to Necrosis is the failure of neovascularization, so we were investigating the effects of endotoxemia on vascular formation. Additionally, sufficiently concentrated endotoxins appear to be able to cause necrosis of the tissue directly, so the characteristics of endotoxemia may be involved directly. The key process here is called insidation, or the process of blood components ending up in the tissue of the artery wall. This may be the key driver for formation of gelatinous lesions, The exact mechanics are unclear to me at present. It may follow the formation of a mural thrombus or another injury that results in in coagulation. And again, remember the uh, possibility of different time lengths of stimulus, a more acute stimulus versus a more chronic stimulus altering the characteristic of uh, deeper lesions versus more diffuse, broader lesions with less severity. There's a very clear interplay of the aging process on atherosclerotic progression. Lesions appear in new regions of the artery in successive five-year age brackets. This means that the aging process interacts in specific and somewhat reproducible ways with the atherosclerotic process. So for example, you could look at an age bracket of 25 to 30 and you will never find atherosclerotic plaques in the certain uh, narrow straight region of the artery. But if you look in the following five-year age bracket, you'll see them uh, appear and moreover be in the uh, a more moving towards a complicated lesion status by the end of that age bracket. It will be interesting to uh, explore the process of aging and the interactions with aging on immune activation response and repair, because those are are obviously very closely involved and coupled with the disease progression. The accumulation of lipids seems to be governed by proteoglycans, an extracellular matrix, and the related tissue formation. Proteoglycans seem to interact with endotoxemia, and they are involved with and perhaps governed by the immune response. There are a variety of mechanisms that support lipid accumulation, is a secondary characteristic of the disease, and follows the upstream changes in signals like damage, immune activation, and endotoxemia. Again, when you look at what governs retention of lipid, it is the local tissue conditions and the macromolecular structure of the tissue. The rate of lipoprotein flux through the tissue does not vary between locations with accumulation versus healthy tissue. And I also want to underscore the velocity of the disease. Although atherosclerosis may still be a chronic disease, the progression is not measured in an entire lifetime, but rather in a single-digit number of years at a maximum. It is clearly possible for the disease to move very quickly and generate significant lesions in a maximum of three to five years. And while atherosclerosis is chronic, a heart attack is a very acute state. A heart attack is not caused by slowly calcifying mature lesions. The factors which govern heart attacks happen on a very short timescale in the order of minutes. This is why heart attacks are more common in the morning than in the evening, and why stress can precipitate a heart attack. This has kind of good and bad implications for us. The good news is that if you stop subjecting your body to the negative stimulus that results in endotoxemia and atherogenesis, you will quickly stop the progression of atherosclerosis. This means you could have a 95% occluded LAD, but that if you switch to carnivore OMAD, it is plausible that your event rate would plummet and your risk of a heart attack within a very short time window would approach zero. However, 
This also means that a very short bingery, as Dave Feldman calls it, where you go to a wedding weekend and you binge drink and scarf down garbage for a while, could have substantial implications on event rate. This is the same reason we get much higher event rates localized around respiratory infection. Assuming this binge creates a high endotoxin level, it could very easily cause problems. So for me, I'm very hesitant to cheat because I know how addicted I am to garbage food and it doesn't take very much cheat to trigger cravings. But if you need more reasons not to cheat, I learned relatively recently that atherosclerosis is a very dynamic disease and lesions can form very quickly. So that's all I've got for you today. I'll be uh, following this up with another episode. We'll most likely bring Nathan in because he's uh, more more in-depth on the, uh, the all the different associations that we see with endotoxemia and drugs and disease and immune activation. So thanks for tuning in and we'll, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Root Causing Health Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. Also visit us online at rootcausinghealth.com to learn more. And please consider supporting our research on Patreon. Patreon.